culture makes disciples. Culture makes disciples. We're a disciple-making church. That means one of our little mottos is we want to be disciple-making disciples. So we're not just happy with just us being disciples. We want to make other disciples who then are trained to make other disciples who then make other disciples. And culture is a big part of making disciples. As we look at Genesis 19, there are things here that are truly awful viewing. So I'm going to read Genesis 19 now, and we're going to see how much through this, what is, well, destruction, deliverance, and then disgrace, yet what it is that culture makes disciples and how important that is for us to see what this has got for us. Because here's going to be a temptation, friends, straight out the gate before we've read Genesis 19. We will be tempted to think this is all about them out there. And we need to see that this is 1 Corinthians 10, God's word is written for us. So what is Genesis 19 teaching us? Let's read verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Oh, now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-laws, daughters-in-laws, anyone in this city? Bring them out of the place, for we're about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-laws, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get up out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. 
Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, I know, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown in me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of that city was called Zaor. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zaor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back. And she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Now Lot went up to Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after all the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of Yamanites to this day. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Culture makes disciples. Of course, culture makes disciples everywhere. It's not just churches that we make disciples. A disciple, the word disciple means learner. We all learn and, and, and get enculturated in many different ways in our society. And you can see this in our everyday media. What we just read, we would think that's pretty highly rated. Perhaps we shouldn't read it in front of children. But the sad part about our society is children as young as 11, the, the stats recently said, are seeing worse than this on any device they can find from their family or friend. We live in a society where we are so encultured by the stuff of Genesis 19 that even if we cringed a little bit when we saw it, our society would think it'd be entertainment perhaps for another movie. It would make an extended scene. Culture makes disciples. Whatever culture you're in, 
We all learn in cultural environments, for disciples and learners, be that the home environment, church culture, or society. So whatever culture you're part of in formation, you'll be formed and you'll be forming others. We see this in the way nature and nurture work in a home environment. Children born into a home have a sense of nature. They inherit things from their parents. If you were to look at me, uh, I have weird ears. You may not have noticed. One sticks out more than the other. So you've got to look at me symmetrically. Oh, that's weird. Now you're all going to notice for the rest of your life. Because I inherited that from my family. You look at all the pictures of my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, it's weird ears. But we also inherit other things from our families, don't we? We inherit attitudes, reactions, responses, the way in which we treat people. The way in which we are treated is often how we are trained to then treat other people. Because the home is a culture-shaping environment, nature and nurture work together. Children are always learners, little disciples who follow their parents. They will be excited by what you're excited about. So if you're not particularly highly excited most of all about the Lord Jesus, they're not going to learn to be most excited about the Lord Jesus. They're going to be excited about what you're excited about. If they see parents who just live their life on the screen, even at the table, that's what they'll think. Life is to be lived by. Do you know the song, Cats in the Cradle, The Silver Spoon? I'm going to grow up to be like you, Dad. I'm going to grow up to be like you. Culture makes disciples. We see it from the home to our wider society. Adults are just more sophisticated at hiding this, though. Adults are seasoned, and so we just don't see some things so easily. This happens when we inhabit the two most influential spheres of our life of the Christian What are the two most influential spheres of the Christian life? That's what the Bible identifies is the church and the world. They're the two most influential spheres for the Christian life. And those two cultures will make our life. They will shape us. This is the story of Lot. This happened to Lot and his family. What happens in Genesis 19 to Lot and his family is not an accident, it's not a series of circumstances. What happens has been tracking for a while in his family. Today we see Lot and his family living in the culture that is Sodom, part of the twin cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, of this valley. But we've met him before and he has been tracking towards Sodom his whole Canaanite life. Come and look at this. Look at Sodom. It's Sodom, you see the first point in your outline, is a society that suppresses the truth and so therefore, surprisingly, becomes judgy. That's what Sodom is. Sodom is a very, Sodom's a very judgy society, just like ours. Have a look with me. You have a look at verses 1 to 11. Uh, we, we've, uh, we've seen Lot um, and Uncle Abraham move into Canaan. We've seen that before. So Lot and Uncle Abraham, Lot's his nephew, moved to Canaan and their wealth has grown. And Lot being the younger man had benefited so much from being with Abraham because God had promised Abraham that through you I'll bless everyone else. So Lot's hanging out with Abraham. Things are going well. He's being blessed. All families of the earth shall be blessed, Genesis 12. But then in Genesis 13, Lot's wealth grows so much and perhaps his own pride and perhaps his own sense of I'm an achiever, I've achieved something, He has to, well, leave Abraham's comfort and care and he gets to pick. Abraham, the older, wiser, gracious man, gives him first pick of all of Canaan. And what does Lot do? 
We know this from Genesis 13. Have a look with me in Genesis 13. Turn back to Genesis 13, verse 10. Here's what Lot does. And this is like a prelude. It's like teaser trailer for Genesis 19. Here's the teaser trailer for Genesis 19. Genesis 13, verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked great sinners against the Lord. Did you notice how Sodom has been described here in Genesis 13? Even before you meet Sodom in Genesis 19 again, do you you see how it's described here? Wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And that takes us into Genesis 19, into a scene that is, in a word, traumatic. Two angels had been with the Lord and they had met with Abraham in Genesis 18. And as they come down to Sodom, we see that Lot meets them at the gate. It's an ordinary scene of ancient Near East hospitality. It soon starts going sideways. Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom, which is where the elders of the city sit. So it means that Lot has some sort of standing here. Uh, the leading men of the city would sit for council and court over the city affairs. So it seems that Lot has some sort of standing with these people. He's joined the leadership team of the city of Sodom. And this is how far the man and his family have become part of the culture of the place. Yet perhaps Lot sees his own place in Sodom as that being of an influencer for good. You know what I'll do? I'll join the city council. I'll do good things. I'll turn their direction. I'll have a voice. I'll have a say. I'll make this city great. We love the city. Let's make it great and I'll be an influencer for good. After all, here's what we notice at the city gate that day. Normally you've got the elders of the city, the leaders of the city sitting there. But only Lot offers them hospitality. And you can see his hospitality is five star. They spend the night, wash your feet, be my guest, be my guest. In a moment we'll see the men of Sodom pressing against Lot violently, but here Lot presses towards them with love because they say we'd like to stay in the town square, we're going to swag it. And Lot says, no, um, no, no, you shouldn't do that. Come to my home, which is a bit kind of ominous, isn't it? He presses them, no, you need to come to my home. Lot makes them a feast, he's a fine host. He wanted them in the safety of his house, not in the city square. But what happens next holds such horror. All the men of Sodom surround Lot's home and they want to bring those two angels out. They want those two angels so they can know them. And Lot goes out to protect his two visitors, but then he does what's just a father can't comprehend. He offers his virgin daughters to the slobbering men of Sodom. What father does that? How could a father make such an offer? 
After all, in our second cross-reference reading today, we read that Lot is called by Peter, who writes his Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 2, verse 8, he calls him a righteous man. We know that righteous is not inherently part of Lot's life. He's righteous because he trusts in God. We're, we're righteous by faith, not by nat- nature. And so, yeah, he trusts in God, although it's for Lot, it's been a really wavering trust. But how could Lot... Even a silly man, sometimes a selfish man. How could even Lot, the righteous by faith man, offer his virgin daughters to these men? How could he do it, friends? Here's the reason. That's the power of what a culture does to your mindset. Because you are so enculturated that you think that's okay, that that wouldn't be as worse... That that's a better option? At that point, they start bringing violence upon Lot. They press hard against him, the text says. And here's where people try and twist what this episode teaches. You don't have to Google very far to find. People try and reinvent, twist, and all sorts of textual gymnastics to say, oh, that's not what this text means. This is not talking about some sort of sexual perversion. It's not what it means. It means something else. There are even so-called scholars who say the sin of Sodom was not a sexual sin. One so-called scholar argues that the men of Sodom were simply angry with Lot because he was a foreigner to Canaan and such he had broken, offensed, or done, offended or done something wrong of current culture by receiving two foreigners whose credentials had not been examined. In other words, Lot being a foreigner receives two men, their passports haven't been checked at the gate. How could you do that, Lot? And they're angry about that. That's what one scholar, so-called, suggests this is what this text is about. But friends, you don't have to be a scholar or a so-called scholar to see how false and flimsy that reasoning is. For a few reasons. Notice this. One, the word no that the ESV uses here is used throughout the scriptures in a sexual sense. And when you think about it, it doesn't take very long, that makes total sense. For one human being to know another, and God has so made this for marriage, to know someone in a sexual sense is the most intimate way Naked, unashamed, to know someone is the most intimate way you can know another human being. So, so-called scholar, to say it's knowing is just like being friendly, well, that's not the case. Not by the text. Secondly, if it is just a case of hospitality gone wrong, how weird would it be for Lot then to say, look, I know this has gone wrong, I've not done the right thing by the hospitality rules of our town, here's my two virgin daughters. makes no sense. This is not Lot offering his daughters to a group of angry men demanding to examine an immigration issue. And thirdly, how obvious is it that the, the mob of men are not angry because well, just they're super into hospitality done right? They're not angry about that. That's not in the sense that they want to know these men. They are full of lust and violence. 
Here we see a society that so suppresses the truth about human biology and bodies and relationships that they actually have become judgy. I know that sounds ironic, because it is. We live in a society where if you were to say differently or to read this passage out, and all our sermons go online, we know what happens. I know the state of Victoria that I live in. I know the context of the culture I'm in. I receive it. I get it. I have conversations. But here's the thing, friends. Can we see clearly that if we make a different twist of interpretation of this passage, if we say something different to what is natural, what God has ordained, are we not making judgments? So to say to the church or Christians or the preachers, you're just being judgy, that's a judgment statement. That is a judgy statement. And it's in the text in Genesis 19. Have a look. We read Genesis 19, verse 9. But they said to Lot, stand back. And they said, this fellow has come to sojourn and he has become the judge. You're getting judgy, Lot. Think we're doing something wrong here? Well, anyone who reads this has a sense, surely, if your conscience has not been seared, that there's something wrong here. Yes, there's something wrong. It is not normal for people to aim to destroy people's lives by surrounding their house, banging down the door, demanding to know two people in such a way like that, and then, as a second option, there's two virgin daughters. And why is it they're suppressing the truth? Because of sin. We read this in Romans 1, our first cross-reference reading. Um, in Romans 1, we see this. I mean, you can flick there if you'd like to, but you don't have to because I'll read it. But Ryan read this. We read in Romans 1 what is just so obvious about our world and our society. It's so obvious as Genesis 19 is obvious. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 1 is saying this, it's not like our society back in Sodom or today in Bendigo just is ignorant. We just don't know. We don't have enough knowledge. If only we were better taught about the truth. That's not the issue. The issue is not better education. The issue is changed hearts. The issue is sin of our hearts. And as also as we read in Jude about these cities, this event, Jude 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursue an unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. See this? Sodom is a society that suppresses the truth and enculturates people to believe lies. Sin is their God and they're consumed by it. Now here's a diagnostic question. If God has made us, and we've seen in Genesis, if God has made us, like Brian prayed in the pastoral prayer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever, if God has made us for that, in other words, if God has made us to enjoy him, to be happy, yet what we do in our sin is we don't choose God. We actually always by our sin will go the other way. Question, look at these men, look at this city, look at this society. Does it make them happy? Does living this way make them happy? Does it satisfy them? Does living for those desires of the flesh satisfy them? No. One of the things about pornography that studies have shown is this. It's an addiction. 
It's an addictive thing. And where it starts, small or somewhere like that, if you could grade it, people have then not been able to give it up and they grow in it. And they grow in their addiction and it gets worse and worse until what they start watching and getting engaged in is just, they would never have thought of doing to start with. Because their heart is suppressing the truth that this is actually killing me. We see at Sodom, it's not making them happy, it's not making them satisfied, in fact it's killing them and it's bringing the wrath of God upon them. Does their culture of sin liberate them to being open-minded and accepting of everyone? Does it? Do they accept everyone in Sodom? No, they do not. All this is clear to us and we're not even so-called scholars. They become more judgy. They say this about Lot. And even though Lot had tried to be all savvy in Sodom, living in the city and the worldliness he longed for, really, now he finds that because he disagrees with the lifestyle choices of Sodom, that he is judged not worthy to be listened to anymore. Once he was sitting at the gate as an elder, and in one moment of disagreement, now he has no seat at that table. He is judged not worthy. Lot has lost any ability also to manage the situation before him. And so the two angels reveal who they really are with blinding power. And even as the men of Sodom are blinded, notice what it says. It's such, a, such an awful scene in verse 11. They wear themselves out as they grope for the door. In other words, they didn't stop. Being blinded didn't stop them. Like a bunch of zombies on sexual drugs, they just want to go straight for their sin. It doesn't stop them. But the angels have come to do more than blind sinful men. Destruction has come for Sodom, and so for anyone who wants to be saved, it's time to don't look back lest you be swept away. Verse 13. The angel repeats the Lord's resolution against the city of Sodom. The Lord had already told this to Abraham back in Genesis 18. He'd already said this. He'd said to Abraham, I'm going to destroy these cities because of this. And we read a repeat in verse 13. Because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. This is not just something of society doing this, a different society doing this, a different country, a different nation, a different people group, a different culture. This is personal. Sin is always personal. Between who? between the Lord God who made us and wherever we are, you and I. And so they urgently tell Lot to gather his whole family, get up and get out. And Lot goes to his future sons-in-laws who had yet to marry his virgin daughters, but they thought he's joking. Ha <laughs> ha, you're just joking around. Life's going to carry on as normal. We're going to get up tomorrow, we're going to do business and do whatever we want in the evenings too. Why are they like this? Because they're enculturated. Their hearts are in love with the world that they live in. And then as morning dawns, the angels implore Lot, who is lingering, by the way, who is reluctant to leave the city that he loves, that he lingers. And so the angels mercifully grab his family by the hand and pull them out. And they say, escape for your life. Do not look back. And so they go. The angels grant a request to Lot to go to Zo, 
or because he just can't see himself making it to the hills. And as they arrive, sulfur and fire rain down. And the judgment of sin of Sodom and Gomorrah on the cities, on that culture, the culture that Lot had longed for, had lingered in, comes for destruction. And out of this destruction, Lot and his family are delivered. By the mercy and grace of God, they escape except one looks back. I think it's interesting and noteworthy that when we see Lot being host to the two angels, we don't see any mention of Lot's wife. Unlike Abraham and Sarah who are hosted, the three of them, the Lord and the two angels, Sarah's cooking and baking and they're both together making feasts. Lot's wife is not on the scene She's perhaps so involved in the culture around her that it's not seen as a priority for her. But, but she comes, she's rescued. But as she goes, do you see what she's doing as she looks back? It would be easy to assume she looks back because she got distracted. She saw a flash. She tripped. She looked back. She wondered if the, the kids were coming too. But that's not what the text is showing us. And it's not what the New Testament says about Lot's wife. The angels had told them to not look back. And Lot's wife, with longing and lingering, with wistful love of the world that she had inhabited, looked back because she didn't really want to leave. And she looks back with a lingering look. That's where her heart is. And as she does, the very thing that Lot had actually expressed fear over, he was worried about this, that very thing happens, the disaster overtakes Lot's wife. And she is swept away. Here is a scene of destruction and deliverance because God remembered Abraham and so rescued Lot. Look at verse 27. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward the land of the valley. He looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up and filled the land like a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out. The Lord God rescues Lot, not because Lot's a particularly great guy. He's righteous by faith. He's rescued because... His uncle had prayed for him. He's rescued because of the prayers of the saints, because of Abraham's prayer in Genesis 18. Abraham had said to the Lord, what if there's, um, you know, like in, in the 50s, 20s, 10s, what is 10? Abraham's prayer on that very spot that he's looking now that morning, Abraham had prayed, he talked to the Lord on that spot and said, would you save even a few? What if there's four? Well, since Lot's wife turned back, what if there's three? That's who comes out. Abraham is a prophet who intercedes for people. Just like Moses, Samuel, Jeremiah, who interceded for God's people, but Abraham is different, isn't he? Because he intercedes for Canaan. He asked for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, of this evil, wicked place, if there's someone there that you would save by faith, would you do that, Lord? 
And Lot and his daughters are safe after destruction and deliverance. Even God's people here, they're safe and sound by his grace. But what happens next is a disgrace. It's another awful scene of horror. We would barely wish to look at it, so why is it in the Bible and why are we looking at it as we look at Sodom and Gomorrah? Because it's all the same theme. See, just unlike the fantasy world that the men of Sodom and Gomorrah tried to create for themselves, and unlike the world our society seeks to pretend that we're all good, that's all a fantasy. The Bible is actually the most real book in the world. The Bible doesn't hide things. The Bible won't say, oh, we won't talk about the sin of even leadership or the sin of the church or the sin of Israel or the sin of Abraham the sin of Lot and his daughters, the Bible is gritty and real and ruggedly truthful. It doesn't hide what's happening here. And what happens here is horrible. What happens here is culture matters for the rescued people of God too. This is not just an us and them. Ah, Bendigo and the world's like Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's just flee and live somewhere in a commune and do the Benedict option or something. That is not an option. Jesus speaks to this. He prays about this. He prays to his Father, don't take them out of the world. They've got to be in the world but not of the world. And if we're going to be in the world but not of the world, culture matters for the rescued people of God. Culture matters for the church. In Genesis 19, towards the end, we see in verse 30, Now Lot went up to Zoar, lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. Isn't that interesting? He said to the angels, I can live there, it's safe. But now he's afraid to live in Zoar. Lot has gone from being such a city dweller in Sodom, living of the world there, to wanting to find safety in Zoor, to now fearing and so fleeing the rest of the world that he would get away from the world in any which way he can and as long as he's not living in the world, he'll be righteous, he'll be safe. Does he feel safe? No, he does not. To live in his days in a cave with his two daughters? How this wealthy man of means, the savvy man of Sodom, has fallen into a fearful state. And living in this cave sees Lot's daughters do what we might consider desperate, except if we look closely at the text, it's way more calculated than desperate. Have a look closely. Verse 31, And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on the earth to come into us after manner of all the earth. Is that true? There's not a man on the earth? That's not true. They're living in a cave, but if you just went back to Zoor, you know where it is, you're on the map, you were there. Just go back to Zoor, you'll find men. But not even that, you could find great uncle Abraham. He's a kind man. He's got a big family, big staff team. There's men on the earth. This is not an act of desperation. So why do two daughters make such a heinous decision? They're so enculturated by the culture they've lived in that that would be normal. Their mind is so warped by the society they've lived in, the pornography they've consumed, 
the things in the media they've seen, the way in which their parents have talked and the attitudes held in the home, that they think that's totally normal to sleep with their father. And even as they try and pretend everything's going to be okay, it's not really. Because they still have consciences that, even if they're a little bit seared, tell themselves something's wrong about this, so we need to make sure he's drunk. And what has become of Lot and his family is a disgrace. And what they do is something that surrounding peoples, even of that time and place, we know from ancient Near East literature, would find disgraceful. And here is Lot's disgrace, although he is drunk and doesn't know, here, his culture of worldliness in the home has so corrupted the reasoning of his daughters that his virgin daughters that Lot once offered to slobbering men of Sodom now offer their virginity in disgrace to him. And we see from the closing of the narrative, this is where the nations of the Moabites and the Ammonites come from. And if we left it there, which we're about to, without seeing how is this passage about Jesus, we wouldn't understand Genesis 19 at all. Is a contention of us, we're reformed in theology, you do not understand any part of the Bible without reading it through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So where is the gospel of Jesus Christ here? There's a few little hints and one big one. Little hints like this. When you hear, and Lot, in his disgrace with his daughters, ends up fathering two nations, the Moabites, the Ammonites, they become kind of cousins of Israel. But even then you hear about Moab, and then you hear about someone from Moab, who is in the family line of Jesus. You know her name? Ruth. Ruth is a Moabite. And through Ruth comes King David, comes the real king, to rescue us from all this mess. That's a few little hints in the text, but there's another big one. You turn back and you see Abraham. Abraham looking down. And through Abraham we see this. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and temptations. We read our second cross-reference reading from, from 2 Peter chapter 2. In 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 9, we read something about righteous lot. And it says in, in 2 verse 8, For that righteous man lived among them day after day. He was tormenting in his righteous soul over their lawless deeds he saw and heard. And then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment till the day of judgment. Lot is saved, 1 Corinthians 3 style, as through fire. He has loss. And he's saved through fire, that loss. He loses his wife his future sons-in-laws, the dignity of his daughters. But the New Testament still calls him a righteous man. He's there not because of his own righteousness, but because of a righteousness that's actually foreign to him. As much as he was a foreigner in Sodom, the righteousness that Lot can have, that any sinner can have, calling all sinners to come to this place, no matter your shame or disgrace, no matter what's happened in Lot's life, 
and we see the whole thing writ large. No matter what's happened in your life, and you may know the whole thing, but you don't want anyone else to know it writ large, understandably. But the Lord knows, and the Lord knows this also. He knows how to save, to rescue people from all trials and all temptations. And now is the time to up and flee to Jesus. Abraham is there. He had been praying for people to flee to the Lord, to be rescued. And the Lord is teaching us how he rescues us. He's also teaching us how culture makes disciples in the world. So teaching our need of Jesus in making disciples in the church. You see, the reason for Lot's longing, his lingering for Sodom and the family mess that he'd made was his own worldliness. And the Bible teaches us to guard against that, to watch out for it, that worldliness, to watch out for the sin of our own hearts. The Puritans knew this and so wrote books on this, like John Owen's The Death of Death or The Mortification of Sin. John Owen picks up Romans 8 verse 13. If you live by sin, basically, it'll kill you. But if you put to death sin by the Spirit, you will live. John Owen writes, his paraphrase, which I love, is be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's what happened a lot. About 15 years ago, that book became cool again because it's an old one. It's on my shelf. I love it. It's hard to read. I get it. Puritans are hard to read. They write deep and think think long. But people used to wear T-shirts. Probably we should get them. Do you even mortify, bro? Like, are you even mortifying your sin? Are you killing it? Because if you are not killing your sin, it will be killing you. You think you can play with sin? You think you can play with gossip? You think you can play with slander? You think you can play with stuff like that? It's like putting a snake in a bottle and taking it to school. I know this because I did that once. Dumb idea. You can't have a pet snake and think it won't bite you. You can't play with sin. Lot thought he could. See, Lot thought he could live near Sodom and that would be okay. Then he thought, I can can be in the society and get amongst its leadership and that'll be okay. And maybe it could, but for him, that wasn't the issue. The issue for him wasn't, he wasn't trying to be a missionary. He was just trying to fit in. He was actually happy to be worldly. Even as a believer in God, the worldliness crept in. Here is a half-hearted, worldly believer who wanted the world and in the end lost everything in the world. Friends, we are susceptible to this when we think we can be worldly, play with sin, linger and look online or in life, and it's going to be okay. It will not be okay. It will not make you happy, satisfied, or give you flourishing of life. And we, come, we can become so enculturated that we can't see anything different. And as someone to point it out, shock, horror, you pointed out sin in my life. Oh, that's awful. You're awful. No, no, no. Sin is awful, friends. And Jesus is beautiful. Jesus brings rescue. Jesus brings rejoicing. Jesus brings flourishing. The Lord Jesus is the one who comes into the world for Lot. He comes into the world. He's not of the world, but he comes into the world. You know what he does? He's in the world, not of the world. But what he does at the cross is extraordinary because he takes the world of sin and puts it on his shoulders. The one who had 
no accusation to his name, takes all false accusations. The one who had no immorality in his heart is the one who takes all immorality onto him so his heart stops. He goes into death, taking what is deserving of death into that moment, into him. So you don't have to. Abraham prayed for others, that others would be shielded from that day of judgment. The Lord Jesus prays for us. Jesus himself says in Luke 17, Remember Lot's wife, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Jesus says himself, remember Lot's wife. Friends, we need to flee to Jesus. And whilst it would be easy and self-righteous to think that we're okay because we've got our own cave solution going on. And we'll just find a cave and we'll live in the cave and, and that's our solution. Friends, you can't escape sin because the sin is not outside the cave, it's in here in my heart. You cannot escape by yourself. You need to trust in Jesus. And if you do this by faith and his death for you, you will be saved. You'll be safe from the wrath to come. And a church is a number of names of people who have been saved, even if there are only 10 of us in this city. Saved and safe in Jesus. And friends, as Jesus' church, this means as we live in this world, we don't linger in this world. We don't love the world to be of the world We love it to lead them to Jesus who loves them. And we come to pray for the world. We have one greater than Abraham who intercedes for the world, Jesus Christ. And as we do, we pray as we make disciples a culture of Christ, not a culture of the world, but a beautiful culture that shows the fake lies of worldliness for what it is. To live for the world, you will not be satisfied. It will shrivel you. And so for us, what we have before us is an opportunity now. By grace, by mercy, we've been seized by the hand of Christ to show the beauty of Jesus and what he does for us. And now the opportunity is this. Not linger and love sin, but instead enjoy loving the Lord who rescues us to be godly. He can and he does do this through trials and temptations and we can trust him in both. He is the judge of the secrets. We are safe in him. Let's pray and sing. Our Father in heaven, we worship you. Son and Spirit, the one true and triune God who answered the prayers of Abraham for those in need of rescue from Sodom and we're grateful for your grace to us. That by such means of grace of prayer, prayers answered, there are people who have prayed for us, for all of us in this room, Someone has prayed for us that we would be safe in Jesus. And so we say thank you for them. Thank you for their prayers answered, like you answered Abraham's prayers. And now it's time for us to pray. We're asking that we would see our families and our friends and our neighbours as we go into this week of sent worship, that we would start our week with a ministry of morning tea, of praying for one another. That we would remember in our prayers for them that request that you would save them, 
Suppose there are ten of them or less. Please, Lord, save many more. And we pray this with confidence in the name of Jesus that you will. Amen.